All right, we're going to open once again this morning to Romans chapter 12. So I'll ask you to do that at this time, Romans chapter 12. And so after Paul's great celebration of the, just the awesomeness of the fact that God poured his wisdom out upon us and gave it to Paul to put into the written word, and he falls to his knees and he praises God, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, he writes, and his ways past finding out. And then he goes into this section in chapter 12 where he says, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, because God poured out his wisdom. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Father, we praise you this morning for the body of Christ, for the worship service, O Lord, as your word calls it, the reasonable, intelligent worship. Father, we praise you for this and praise you that in these moments we are engaged in this very solemn act of worshiping the one and only God and creator of the universe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so you see, Paul goes from recognizing the greatness of the doctrine that he has taught now for 11 chapters, and he suddenly comes to the end of the 11th chapter, and the only application the apostle can have is fall to your knees and praise God that the wisdom of God's mind has been opened up to us. And as you know, I like to remind you that there's Paul in Corinth writing this letter. He's at the house of Gaius, who hosts the church in Corinth. And we know all this because of the last uh, few uh, sentences of the book of Romans, where he says we're at the house of Gaius, the host of the church, and Tertius, his faithful secretary, is writing down the words of this, uh, of this letter as Paul is dictating it to him. And they are all praising God together, and they come to this place, and Paul, who has poured out all this doctrine on us for all these chapters, somebody told me it takes about an hour to read uh, aloud the, the epistle to the Romans, Um, if you can imagine, someone was probably doing that in the Roman church at that time. But um, it's taken us almost a a little over a year and a half just to get to this place. And, um, but here we are in this, and um, 
I hope you are as overwhelmed as the apostle expects us to be by the revelations of God about salvation and the gift that it is of his spirit to us. It's not something we gained of ourselves, but there is an application to it. It's not something we gained of ourselves, but there is something we can add to it. And that's where the apostles teaching is going now really through the end of the epistle and so he says don't be conformed to this world in other words don't be like the world there's so many ways that we're like the world i mean we have to work and sustain ourselves we have to wear clothes and um as uh, a few christians have complained over the years i wear these clothes because it's what they have in the stores yeah, it wasn't my first choice. Some of the women, it wasn't my first choice for modesty, but this is what they're selling in the store. So there are certain ways we conform uh, to the ways of the world. I'm presuming that you all stop when the light turns red. You know, I don't think the Lord has any particular complaint about conforming to that structure. Um, but there are certain things that we don't conform to, and one is the fashionable, changing morality of this world. Don't be like the world. Friends, the world is not the boilerplate that we're copying. Christ is the boilerplate that we're copying. So don't be conformed to the world, but do be transformed by your mind, your renewed mind. That was a gift of God, the renewed mind. Elsewhere, Paul calls it the spirit of your mind. I was thinking about this this morning. What do you think he means when he says, by the spirit of your mind? It's something he said to the Ephesians. The spirit of your mind. Think about your mind. Think about your mind. Your mind does the thinking, but you can think about your mind thinking. That's an amazing thing. You can evaluate the work that your mind is doing. That's the spirit of your mind. The, your spirit is actually transcends your mind. It's almost as if we're talking about your brain when we say mind, and spirit is the mind that reflects upon what the brain is doing, what it's thinking, what it's concluding. You can evaluate the thoughts of your own mind. And the Christian has access to evaluate it through the mind of Christ, which belongs to him. Christ has opened his mind to us. That's what the written word is. That's what Tertius and Paul and Gaius are on their knees rejoicing about. And so that we come to this place in the scripture where God presents the gospel as it is. It's a dichotomy. In other words, there's two parts to it that almost seem in tension with one another, but they're not. They perfectly work together. And that is that God is sovereign. He makes all the decisions. He makes all the changes in your lives. But you're still responsible to make those changes. And you're still responsible for your sin when you fail to make those changes. I'm going to tell you right now, I thought about this this week too. I'm going to tell you why you continue to sin. Why all of us continue to sin. I don't, I don't like to say you as though, as though I'm exempt. But um, the reason we continue to sin, it's all about habits. We just do what's habitual to us. And we don't develop new habits. Jay Adams always says a new habit takes 40 days and 40 nights to establish, and then you'll never lose it. So if you brush your teeth at a certain time of day for 40 days and 40 nights, you're, you, that'll become a habit that you'll be uh, addicted to for the rest of your life. If you want to break that habit, you'll have to do a lot of work to stop doing that because you'll be doing something that you habituated yourself to doing. 
Some of us sin because, and take joy in sin because it's been our habit. We have the power to overcome it. We talk a lot about temptation, but we are given the power to to not bow to temptation, to not give into it. We have those powers. God is sovereign, but man is still responsible. So it's, it's explained in this way. Everything in the Christian life, friends, of value, everything in the Christian life, the blood of Christ, we didn't give that to ourselves. God gave it to us. He gave us the death of Christ. He gave us the faith to believe that the death of Christ was atoning for our sins. The world doesn't know that. They see the man upon the cross, but they don't know that that should be giving them access to forgiveness and justification before God. It's a gift that we even know that. That's given to us by God, the faith. The new birth. We can't birth ourselves the first time, and we can't do it the second. We don't get to choose where and when. Nobody here chose their parents. God chose your parents for you, right? The Holy Spirit. You can't give yourself the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. He is a gift from God to guide your life, to teach you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we have the blood of Christ, the faith to believe, the new birth, the Holy Spirit, the fellowships of the saints. We didn't give ourselves the church. God gave us to the church. We belong to her. And peace with God. You can't work that up. I think I'll get some peace with God this afternoon. No, that's a gift from God. How about justification? You can't justify your sins before God. Only he can forgive sin, right? sanctification, and I mean that, that's generally meant in two ways. To be sanctified is just to be set apart, and that's done by God. You're like, I compared you last week to the, to the utensils in the tabernacle in the wilderness or in the ancient temple. You know, the, the gold laver and the, and the bronze implements that the priests use to make sacrifices and such things. You're those instruments. You're set apart for that. You're not used for common drinking or eating Your utensils used for another purpose. That's called sanctification. You've been set apart. And then, of course, there's a progressive side of sanctification that we're talking about today, the part that you add to. And I will major on that this morning. And ultimately, even our blessed hope for glorification is a gift from God. We're all, these things are all bestowed on us from above. Our entire life in Christ is a gift of God. And why do I emphasize that? Because that's what Paul did for 11 chapters. It was all theory, if you will. And I say that in quotes. It's all doctrine. I don't mean theory as though it's unproven. I mean as it's the, as it's the, um, the a blueprint for how we would live our lives. So there's, there's always theory and practice. And he's into the practical side now. But our entire life up until this point is a gift from God. But it's no ordinary gift. It's a series of gifts. It's a series of blessings that are poured out of heaven into the hearts of the saints. God's busy pouring out his mercy and his love upon his chosen elect from eternity past to bless them and to save them and to sanctify them, and to empower them. We have powers, friends, that we do not yet use. Certainly in the area 
of developing right and sanctified habits before God. And one of those habits, don't be conformed to this world. Another of those habits, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how does your mind be renewed? By pouring the word of God into it to cleanse it. We have it from the book of Romans that God chose us from eternity past. And I'll go through some of this. I don't want us, when we get into the application, I don't want us to forget the substance of the teaching that got us here. From Romans, he said, for whom he foreknew. That means loved before. He also predestined. That means destined before. To be conformed to the image of his son. So in other words, you will be conformed to the image of his son because he has predestined it. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. From Ephesians, he writes this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, that's a that's a magnificent, magnanimous expression. Before the foundation of the world? You knew me before the foundation of the world? The answer is yes. He not only knew you, he chose you to walk in his, the light and blessing of his son's sacrifice. He chose you to be here worshiping him this morning, and that's why you're here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Friends, you were more important to God than the establishment of this world. He did it first. He didn't tell you that in in Genesis in the first six days. Why? It was already done. You were already chosen before God came in and called the world into being. That's an awesome thought. But that is our doctrine. That's what's declared. Before the foundation of the world, but he chose you to be holy without blame, before him in love. And then he says it again, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Jesus is the begotten son. We are the adopted sons and daughters. According to what? According to your strenuous efforts? According to your high moral standard? No, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will and not yours and not mine. From 1 Peter, he, 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 Peter gives the, a nickname to the church. He calls us the elect. And so he says, elect, he's writing to you. Who's he writing to? The elect. Elect according to what? The foreknowledge of God who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed revealed rather in the last time. From the book of Acts, Luke writes, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They didn't add themselves. The Lord added them. From John, Jesus said, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. We speak of choice. We speak of making a decision for Christ. And well, we should. But the faculty to make a decision for Christ does not exist in you until God puts it there at some point of his choosing in your life. You can't do it effectually unless God has poured his spirit into you. That's why Jesus says no man can. Remember last week about can and may? 
Remember Can in May, my illustration? Mrs. Crabtree, can I go to the bathroom? Yes, you can. Now sit down. I really have to go. Can I go? I'm quite certain that you can, Mr. Smith, but please sit down. Ms. Crabtree, may I go to the bathroom? Friends, it's a very technical language, the Greek. It says can. It means ability. It, you do not have the ability to choose Christ until he draws you. Until he draws you. And then Jesus said, and I'll raise him up at the last day. In other words, once you're drawn to God, done deal. Your sign sealed, delivered, and guaranteed and God himself is your guarantee. By the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus says again, John 15, 16, You did not chose me, choose me, rather, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So you have to bear fruit. I want to give you an illustration about this bearing of fruit. Um, I'm going to embellish something that I read in the, uh, the teachings of Martin Lloyd-Jones on the subject of bearing fruit. Does anyone have fruit trees? You know, we're in Massachusetts and southeastern Mass, and this is peach season. Does everyone know that? There are peach festivals. You know, I think uh, Diane and Bill have peaches in their peach trees in their yard, right? Chandler Jonathan's shaking his head. He, he's probably sick of spraying those or something. Oh, but what did I say? But Bill and Diane would never spray anything. They just, they just bless it and move on. But... Um, <laughs> But I've eaten those peaches. It's peach time in Massachusetts. There's going to be uh, down in a cushion. They have the pre peach orchards. There's nothing so beautiful as a green tree full of all those yellow-orange peaches all ripe on the trees. Or apple trees. There's orchards down there, and you see the red apples all ripened on the tree, right? The reason an apple tree produces apples is because it's the nature of the tree to produce apples. The reason a peach tree produces peaches, Jesus said the tree is known by the fruit, right? He wants you to bear fruit. And you might say, well, you know, Pastor, I see a lot of unbelievers that have a lot of fruit. And I think they do. I think they do. Unbelievers, there are some unbelievers who you would swear by their good works that they are Christians. But I'm going to give you an illustration. They're not fruit trees. They are Christmas trees. The Christmas tree is a dead thing. The minute you buy it, they cut it. They, when we used to buy ours, they'd put a hole right up through the middle of it. Can't do that to a real tree and hope it's going to live, right? And the, and the, and the Christmas tree, the, the artificial tree, has to be artificially decorated, right? So it's the difference between fruit and tinsel. Now, the, the unbeliever may have a lot of artificial things on there, but it doesn't come out of the substance of that tree. But with the Christian, it does. A good tree bears good fruit, and the tree is known by the fruit. We are justified before God because of the kind of tree we are, and we will bear fruit. It's his will. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, why the fruit tree is going to live forever and the fruit is going to stand forever in the sight of God, the decorated tree, the artificially decorated tree, is going to die and turn brown and be thrown out with the trash. And the decorations taken off for the next artificially decorated tree that you come up with next year. 
So Jesus said, because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Does anyone feel hated today? I sometimes really get the feeling that the world, that the world hates us. But in all the choosing, in all the giving, there's this periodic urging in the epistles to act of our own accord. Christians have to do things, right? And so we see that biblical teaching has to do with our own efforts, even as our, even our own strenuous efforts to conform to Christ. Now, I try to uh, teach the church to do certain things. I'm, I'm very big on worship and Sunday worship and Sunday attendance and being on time and things like that. Um, but unless that starts to come out from within your spirit, it will never be a habit that you'll have and your joy will be forced. I'm not opposed to faking it till you make it, but I think we got to at some point fall on our knees and say, Lord, why aren't I making it? And we go to the word and the word will encourage us and the word will teach us how we should be. And then we'll know when we fall on our knees as Paul and Gaius and Tertius did here because of all the revelation that God so graciously gave us, the worship will flow out of us naturally. It'll be our joy to put him first in our week and first in our lives and first in our affections and first in our speech and our answers to the world. And so we see that biblical teaching has to do with our own efforts, even our own strenuous efforts. The book of Hebrews says what? You've not yet resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. It's all right to strenuously work to please the Lord. But at some point, it ought to naturally come out as the peach tree, as the peach comes out of the peach tree. And so we read, he gives us many different exhortations in many areas of our lives. To the Ephesians, he says, put away lying. Lying's not good for the Christian. The Christian doesn't lie anymore. Let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. Then he says this, be angry and do not sin. Anger is going to come. Sometimes it's righteous, but don't let it cause you to sin. And, he's, and then he says the way you, you, the way you handle that is don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, the anger for the day is sufficient. Don't let it linger into the next day. There's a good exhortation for walking in Christ. Let him who stole steal no more. Um, when I was a kid, I was a stealer. <laughs> Not a, you know, a football player, but a, um, the other kind of stealer. The other kind of stealer. Um, I used to steal things. It was, a, it was a thrill. I didn't really need anything, but I'd steal it anyway. When I was a kid, I, I did this. And it, it was kind of a thing that we had between us as kids. Stealing is definitely in fashion today. Am I right? Smashing grabs are all over the place. There were big stores leaving cities by the dozens and locking up their stuff. Isn't it interesting? We, we lock up the stuff people steal rather than the people that steal the stuff. But um, don't steal. If you're a Christian, don't steal. But rather what? Labor. So you got the negative, don't steal, and you got the positive. Labor, working with your hands, what is good? That you may have something to give him who has need. So that's, that's it. Don't be conformed to this world by being a thief. Be transformed by the renew of, renew, renewing of your mind and become one who, of his own efforts, has something to give. 
and not something, someone who feels depleted and covetous and must steal to make himself feel good. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. We're not people who throw around uh, language unnecessarily, profane language. Um, but use your words for what is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearer. And why do we do all these things? He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like the peach trees created to produce peaches, and the apple tree apples, and the fig tree figs, and the olive tree olives, and the Christian good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's always there with us, preparing and empowering us to walk in the works that he's given us. A simple adage of this relationship may be stated thus, God is sovereign, but I am still responsible. He anticipates the objection to this seeming contradiction in chapter 9. Paul does that. He, he anticipates that you're going to be a little confused by what seems to be a contradiction, but it's no contradiction at all. And so he writes, he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And whom he wills, he hardens. But you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, if he's hardened a man, why does he find fault that the man is hardened? And what's God's answer? Who are you to answer against me? I just told you what I expect. He doesn't always feel compelled to explain everything. Who are you, O oh man? To reply against God, and then he goes further, and he gives a little explanation here. He says, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Then he goes on with that beautiful, timeless illustration of the potter and the clay. Will the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? You're the clay, he's the potter. He makes one pot for one purpose, one for another, and the clay has no say in it. So shut up and do what I say. That's basically what he's saying here. That's what the paraphrased Bible should say. This short passage is perhaps the quintessential example of this relationship between being, which is imparted from heaven, and doing, which is contributed by us in the earth. And so the transformation which every saint has under God has to be stamped with our own fingerprints as well. And so we're given this all-encompassing application. Be not conformed to the world. Look out there at the world and how the world essentially is. Don't be like that. And then look to Christ. And as Christ essentially is, be transformed to be like that. It matters where you set your gaze. And so the transformation which every saint has undergone must be stamped with his own fingerprints as well. And then the blessed dichotomy of which I spoke, but be ye transformed. It's an active transformation. You're taking part in it. You're giving up old things and taking on new. Now up to this point in the epistle, the apostle, the apostle rather, waxed eloquently upon the fact of our justification, which is our new birth. Our justification comes from God. He initiates it. 
He completes it in us. We add nothing to it. Paul famously wrote to the church of this very thing when he said, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, meaning dead in trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. To the Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 he says, you who were dead he made alive. He did that. And so we can see the dichotomy plainly. It was God who determined, in fact, predestined us to be conformed to Christ. And yet here in our passage for today, it's we who have to conform ourselves. We have to work together with God in this effort and not, find, found, not be found striving against God. God does the work in us, and that's the definition and function of sovereignty. We don't ask our permission, his permission, or rather he doesn't ask our permission to be saved. Did you ever notice that? I didn't, he didn't ask my permission to save me, he just did it. He doesn't wait for us to initiate our own salvation, as so many have wrongly presumed. He does the work in us. He pours out his grace in us and upon us. Our salvation is the proof and picture of irresistible grace. When you see somebody who was saved and is vocal about it, you see the picture of irresistible grace, of God changing a human heart. No one ultimately says no to God. People say, oh, I say, people say no to God all the time. Right, but that's not going to last long. That's not going to be forever. Our salvation is the, is the proof. Just so we're in no way confused or argumentative on this point, the Word of God provides for us many vivid illustrations of God's irresistible act of grace. His grace is his business until he makes it our business. And this verse makes it our business. Think of the Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. You know Paul had two names, right? Saul and then Paul. He was on his way with every good and godly intention. That's the other thing. A lot of people in the world think they're serving God. They think they offer service to God, Paul wrote. But they ignorantly undo what God has graciously done. God saved the elect members of the church. Paul called it the way in those days. And yet the apostles stood in league with the very zealots who killed Jesus. And with everyone who believes and prophesies in his name, he went out to kill. After the stoning of Stephen, we read that increased Saul's zeal. He loved that. And Luke writes this, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Isn't it amazing that they ever accepted Paul as a beloved apostle? It is amazing, after statements like that. Saul did not transform himself into the image of God. The Son of God transformed the Pharisee. And so Paul said, a light, or rather, Luke writes, a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul didn't know Jesus by sight when he saw him. He didn't know the voice of deity when he heard it. Rather, deity was thrust upon him, and he was knocked off his horse. Now, he didn't really have a horse, but all the, ref all the uh, Renaissance pictures and paintings have him falling off his horse, so I'm going to go with that. 
Saul, as Paul, would tell the story later to King Agrippa, saying these very things. He told the king of his conversion, remember from Acts 26. And so Paul said this to the king, I shut them up in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And then he said, I punish them often in the synagogues. Imagine this zealot goes right into the synagogues, which were meeting houses for the Jews, and the Christian Jews he harassed and put out. I did all these things, but while I was thus occupied, as I journeyed, he said, at midday, now notice this, it's midday, the sun is very high, and he says, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the midday sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me, and when we had all fallen off our horses, no, when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul had nothing to do with that. He was on his way to wreak havoc upon the church. He's not conforming himself to Christ. He's not transforming himself by the renewing of his mind. All that's being done for him and to him. It's easy to see that, right? And yet his whole life, From then on, from the moment Christ knocked him down, it's a testimony of his own willful contributions to the Christian cause. He gave all of those gifts that he had, the pharisaical training, that great mind, his familiarity with the ancient languages by which he could communicate with so many different peoples. He had all these gifts, and they suddenly they were used for Satan and to destroy the church. And he turned them around and used them for the benefit of the church he he tried to destroy only moments earlier. He was just changed in an instant. You might say in the twinkling of an eye. And so he's saying all this to the king, to Agrippa, who was a Herod king, right? And he said, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You see, Paul can't persuade someone to become a Christian. He can almost persuade them. He can persuade them to think of the facts of Paul's conversion and think it's amazing, but he can't make himself different. He can't conform himself or transform himself. He said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. A Puritan, Matthew Mead, wrote a whole book on the almost Christian based on that one verse. That's what the Puritans do when they preach. They give one verse and they preach a book about the verse. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, O king, but also all who hear me today might be both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, I I wish upon you the joy I know in the Lord, but I don't wish upon you the affliction of being chained. And so he demonstrates that the God who chooses who is the same God who chooses how we must be saved. And then I'll say that time would fail me to tell all the stories of salvation by unconditional election. Friends, Noah didn't seek God. Go back and read it. Noah's testimonies become the answer to every inquiry about election. When someone says, you mean to say God created all these people and only saved some? I say, well, I'm not, I don't really know, but ask Noah when you see him. There was a world of people in Noah's time 
but it was the will of God to save only eight. Noah is the poster boy of election. Abraham didn't seek God, God sought Abraham. And just so there's no disagreement about these matters, God gives us Jonah to make sure we know that you can't say no to God. Jonah didn't seek God. As soon as he knew God was seeking him, he did everything humanly possible to hide from God. You can't hide from God. Your sin's open to God. Just remember that. I hope that haunts you in your sin. That's what Luther said. I hope it haunts every man. The prophet ran away from God. The record tells us now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. People preach it today as though Jonah prepared a great fish to swallow himself. No, God did that. And of course, my favorite example of election, Lazarus. John tells us that Jesus said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus loved to be enigmatic. You know what I mean by that? Like cryptic, like not always clear. Because sometimes he used sleep to mean death. And did he mean that here, or was Lazarus really sleeping? People had to wonder. I go to wake him up. Lazarus was in no position to wake himself up. You do know that's how death works, right? He was in no position to conform himself to anything, much less transform himself. This is the picture of election right here. Please recognize that all these examples are for us to understand that neither are we in such a position of ourselves. Yet in his own timing, And for his own purposes, the Lord transports transports us into a position of contributing our own efforts to the cause of Christ in the earth. We're in that position. We have the power now to contribute, to build upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And he's telling us to do that. God has done all these wonderful things to us, in us, and for us, for his sake. And yet he calls upon us to work together with him. It's an awesome privilege that we get to work with God and know it. We're to engage our own minds, our own thoughts toward this mission. And so Paul is unashamed to present to us this great and wonderful dichotomy. He knows it can be confusing, but he's unashamed to say the two things at once. We're saved by God, we'll be sanctified for his use by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we're assured of our future glorification, and all this doctrine the apostle has taught, and yet he gives us this sacred application. Be not conformed, be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Friends, it comes with reevaluating the things you love and the things you hate. John was very clear. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. He who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away, friends. But those who love the Father endure forever. The first work of faith, as we said last week, our first response to God's unimaginable mercy is to fall on our face and worship him. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. 
Paul has never been reluctant to present the two sides of this dichotomy, this seeming contradiction. He even does it to the Philippians in a single sentence. He says, therefore, my brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you. Work out your own salvation because God works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He combines the two directives, not not only in one, but in one phrase of one sentence. Obey God because he's put it in your heart to obey. Work it out because he's working it out in you, he says. And there it is. There's the whole of the epistle to the Romans. Doctrine and application. Theory put into practice. Receiving faith in Christ and adding to the glory of it. Not being saved by works, but being recognized by God's work in you. It's not Paul's message to tout as a single voice. Peter tells us the same thing. Peter goes on to proclaim this very dichotomy. God acts sovereignly in our lives. And then he goes on to urge us to act accordingly. And so he beseeches us to join in the effort with God. And so Peter writes this. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what we've been saying, right, for 11 chapters. His power has given us access to divinity. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. He's telling us to add to it. And what shall we add? Well, he goes on. Add virtue. Add self-control. Perseverance. In other words, become monuments of godly virtue and never, never give up the fight. So after 11 chapters that explain God's divine prerogative, Paul now brings the whole thing right down to earth, right down to human action. And acting always begins with what? Thinking. We've got to change our thoughts first. That's why he talks about the renewing of your mind. Nothing will change until your thoughts change. So thankfully we can think about our thoughts that's an awesome gift God gave us. We can, we can think about our thoughts as though we're separate from ourselves. We can look at ourselves. We can evaluate ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings even. Make sure your feelings conform to your righteous thinking and not vice versa. Don't just be these, think, these feeling things all over the place. Be thinkers. The Christian life is an intellectual life. The renewing of the mind he's talking about. We're enabled to think God's thoughts after him. That's a gift. And so we're commanded to do so. As he said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have what? The mind of Christ. So we spoke last week of this first initiative of the born-again saint. It is to worship. We're to be physically present. We're to be mentally present as well, renewing our minds. Rethink your every past conclusion about things when you come into the body of Christ. In other words, what? Cleanse your mind of every false thought and every false way. 
And it goes on in daily communion with God. And don't think it's not a battle. It is. And the battlefield is the battlefield for the spirit of your mind. As he said to the Corinthians, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, there's a war. But it's a different kind of war. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. For what? Pulling down strongholds. And then he says these things. Casting down arguments. Casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. This is about knowledge. This is about rational thinking. Bringing every what? Thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's how you sanctify yourself. That's how you renew your mind. You enter the battle, and it is a battle. And so he can say, without blushing, be not conformed to this world. That's the negative thing. Don't do this. But then he gives us the positive thing. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Friends, we have to be skeptical. You know, don't be, don't be talking point Christians. Don't just be headline Christians. Know the whole context of the story. You know what I mean? There's a lot to this Bible that doesn't fit on a bumper, bumper sticker. Be skeptical when you look out at the world. Paul said, how shall we who are dead to sin live in it any longer? And Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Be skeptical of the way that everyone's going. If everyone's going over there, sit back and evaluate it before you rush in with the crowd. Our way is narrow, he says, and it's difficult. And it's difficult because everyone on the Broadway is going, why, aren't you, why are you going that way? What's wrong with you? Are you judging us? That's what they're going to do. Because Christians don't want to be told that they're judgmental. Oh, we hate that. And he said, there's a few who find it. And you look around and there's only a few of you. Like, yeah, not much strength. Yeah, what I'm doing is not very fashionable. There are few who find it. Who find what? Who find life. And so this word conform refers to fashion. It's such an interesting word in the Greek. The word is sukematizo. Sukematizo. I always add a little Italian inflection in there. It's probably sukematizo. But um, the word means to fashion or shape a thing. And here's what's interesting. You look it up in, the, in Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Terms, the lexicon that's on my desk. You look up um, conform, and you know what it says? See fashion. See fashion. In other words, don't fashion yourself according to the world's fashions. The apostle's telling us not to go after the fashions of the world. Friends, what do fashions do? They go out of style. Christianity's not a fashion. It doesn't change. I, oh, Karen knows where I'm going right now. We were watching a news show the other day, and it was one of those morning conservative channel news shows. And the, the Christian newscaster, they, they had on... Um, this um, really nice Christian gentleman, a black man who was a really good musician, and he plays worship music. 
but he but they began talking about his concert. He was doing a concert. They do morning concerts on some of the morning shows, right? And he's doing a concert. And the Christian newscaster and the Christian singer were talking about the concert as though it was the church. Equal to the church. And she said, I am amazed to watch the evolution of the church down through the ages. We don't get to evolve, do we? We have to be the same. So he recognizes us. The word doesn't change with fashion. We don't change with fashion. Worship isn't a rock concert, contrary to what you might have believed. And I'm not saying rock concerts are, are uh, inherently evil or anything like that. Or we shouldn't sing our praises to God and sway and clap and be joyful. But it's not the same as a worship service. It is not the church of God. The church of God isn't just a, a, a group of a whole bunch of people who know the lyrics to a song. That's not who we are. Don't be skeptical of the fashions. Fashions and clothing, fashions and thinking. These things are transitory things. The things that are so important to the world and the media today, they'll be gone in a few years. Maybe less. I think they're already fading out. They'll die out. Fashions don't last. I've had a, a mustache since college days. Mustaches, as you know, went out of style. Well, guess what? They're back in. Christians should all have mustaches. I, I've always believed that. It's in Leviticus. Go and see. It, it is there. Daniel texted me this, this morning. He's drawing this beautiful picture of Samuel. You ever see Daniel's, I'm sorry, Samson killing the lion, right? And he writes, he texted me this morning, Dad, did Samson have a beard? And my answer was, Samson had a beard, Victor Mator did not. You're too young for that joke. Victor Mator was the actor who played Samson in the old Samson and Delilah thing. He was clean-shaven and very handsome. Um, where was I? Yeah, fashions die out. Do not be on the copying end of those whose lives and lifestyles are destined to expire. Don't be like these people in the world. Their fame and the thing they're famous for is going to hell. Don't copy it. The people of God, though, are permanent. So don't, don't take on perishable customs and beliefs. Take on the eternal ones. That's being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul then urges us, in fact, we ought to recognize he's commanding us. This is a command to act positively in a certain way. Don't do worldly things, do godly things. Be transformed. And it starts with our thinking... So we don't think the world's thoughts after them. Be very skeptical of the world's thoughts. Think God's thoughts. And they're different. Isaiah said it. God said to Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. And the thrust of the passage is, therefore, since my thoughts are available to you, think my thoughts. Forget your thoughts. You can have mine. He's invited the prophet in to receive the knowledge of God. We hear the psalmist say in Psalm 119, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. It's all there in the word. What the apostle is teaching here is that we're to build godly character in ourselves and in each other. There's to be some visible, palpable token of God's character in us. People should 
you, you know, don't, don't be offended when someone says to, uh, about you, yeah, they don't do that. Yeah, the, the Frisleys don't do that. Yeah, we, we'll do that, but don't invite them. They, don't do, they won't do that with us. You know, don't be offended by that. Let them know you do have, you do have different priorities. You do have different values. We're not trying to copy you. So you build godly character in yourself. Now, friends, I've taught you this before. Everything valuable is invisible. Have you ever noticed that? You know, gold is visible, but it's not really valuable. It's only valuable for a while, right? You know, I love these guys on TV that tell me to buy gold. I've never understood that. The gold is valuable. The paper money is not, but you're willing to make a trade. You'll take my worthless paper money for your valuable gold. No one has ever been able to explain to me how that works. Why do you want my paper money when you've got all the gold? You should be making a commercial bragging that you're rich and we're all poor and our money's worth nothing. Instead, you're offering an exchange. I'm skeptical. All right? Love, I've always told you, love is invisible. It's only known by actions. You only know someone loves you by the actions that they do toward you. It says in the lexicon, I've memorized it, agape, love is known by the actions that it prompts. Because you can't see love, right? Guess what else you can't see? You can't see faith. But faith is made known by the actions that it prompts, and I can prove it to you. James said in James chapter 2, verse 18, show me your faith without your works. I can imagine him standing back. Show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works, he said. It's our responsibility to build it into ourselves. We're we're to cultivate it and to water it with the washing of the water by the word Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Make no mistake here, the transformation does not start with conduct. It starts with thinking about conduct. It starts with thinking about what pleases God. Going to the Word and saying, this pleases God, this does not. We're human beings before we become human doings. Right? You have to be before you can do. I mean, it just stands to reason. So it starts with thinking. Jesus' whole thrust in the Sermon on the Mount was to discount popular knowledge for godly knowledge. He was teaching them to be skeptical. He said, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, adultery began with the thought of lust. It was already there. He made similar appeals in other areas. Murder doesn't begin with an outward act. It begins with inward hatred. He who hates his brother without a cause is guilty of murder, he said. It's always the thought and then the action. And the action won't happen if you kill the thought. So don't have hate. It's very likely you won't commit a murder. So it starts by not acting on your old thoughts and conclusions, but by acting upon your renewed conclusions in Christ. It's positive in that it is something that we actively take part in. Be not conformed is passive. It means just say no, right? Just say no. It was Nancy Reagan, the great astrologer. Just say no. 
Be transformed is positive. Take on the disciplines required to renew your mind, which is immersing yourself in the word and in worship and in the fellowship of saints because saints love to renew their minds with each other and talk to each other about these things. It's exciting to us. You can get by in the world, friends, without thinking. All you have to do is read a couple headlines, have a couple talking points, and you can even be considered smart. I can, I can prove it to you. Turn on uh, the, the cable news stations and they got all the heads there and there's no one smart, but they're all talking. And everyone's paying them a lot of money because they know the talking points. So they say them. I don't, I don't want to be like that. I want to know what I'm talking about. I want to know the, the, the last paragraph in the, in the article, not just the headline that's put there to lead me astray. So you can get by in the world without thinking. Just conform yourself to the ready-made thoughts of the world. But in the kingdom of God, it's not like that. Transformation is an active thing. It takes effort. The apostle is telling us that now that we know so much doctrine, so much divine truth, we're now in a position to act upon it for the cause of Christ and the betterment of mankind. Now that he's given us the truth, we're able to act upon it. And so he writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Make your faith visible. Show me your faith by your works. It's a challenge of James, right? Now, one other linguistic point I'm going to make before I close is the word for transformed is the same word used by Matthew when he spoke of Jesus being transfigured. Remember, Jesus went up on the mount with Peter, James, and John, right? The Mount of Transfiguration, they call it in the scriptures. And Jesus was up there, and all of a sudden, his deity became present. The glory of God shone around. He wasn't just a carpenter from Nazareth anymore. He was God he was transfigured. The same word used for transfigured is used for transformed here. Metamorpho. You've heard the word metamorphosis. It's a great change, right? When Moses came down from the mount, the people ran to see him. Remember? He had to put a veil on. He'd been in the presence of God and his face was shining so much they couldn't look on him. It's the same word. The faithful of this world are to become these lights of transformation or transfiguration in the midst of the people. It begins inwardly, but it progresses outwardly. It's the application Jesus gave us in these words when he said, let your light so shine before men. Do you ever think of what that really means? Does that mean dress nicely? Be well-shaven? You know, brush your teeth, maybe use a whitener. I mean, let your light so shine. What does it mean? It's talking about your presence. It's talking about the things you know and are concerned about and talk about and act on. It's about your neighbors looking over and saying, you know, they're a little different than us. They are um, really concerned in their children's lives. And on Sunday morning, the car starts up when we're looking over our newspaper with our coffee and they're going off somewhere all nicely dressed. What's that all about? Let your light so shine. What did Jesus show forth in himself on the mountain of transfiguration? He showed his divinity, his divine nature in human form. We're to be, as Peter wrote, partakers of the divine nature. We're to show forth the glory of God in our walk in this world. 
Jesus proved his divinity by the transfiguration. We ought to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God by our transformation. So the church, the saints within the church, are to be different from the world. We shouldn't, you know, I've always noticed, you know, because concert going and stuff, to get back to that, has become sort of an act of worship today in the churches. But where did we get that? It's obviously a copy from the world. Paul's not having any concerts, right? John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles, they're not song and dance men. They're not, you know, test one, two, you know, up in the Sermon on the Mount, test one, two, you turn it up a little. I mean, they're not doing that kind of thing, Right? They're not song and dance, but we borrowed that from the world because it's something we like. You know what I never understood? Some of you are going to get mad about this, all right? I never understood how we conduct Sunday school. Sunday school is a wonderful thing. Have it. That's a Bible study on Sunday from my point of view. But where do we get grades? Why are all the six and seven-year-olds in one grade and then the eight and nine-year-olds in another grade? And then this guy who's 69 years old but came to Christ yesterday is in the adult Sunday school. He should be in the first grade. I mean, really, if, if, if they're grades... No, but if they're grades, we borrowed grades from the world. There's no grades. I never understood that. I've, see, I'm so skeptical. I don't just say, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, put all the little kids over here so it'll be noisy there. And, you know, then you take this kid. He's, he's eight years old, but he knows the Scripture. David used to, remember David used to recite like whole chapters of scripture? Big show off. (laughs) David, imagine putting David in like uh, the third grade when he was, you know, eight years old. Putting David in the third grade at Sunday school. He already knows the whole Bible, right? But he's in the third grade because of his age. Enough of that. Cameron's like, okay, you've said it, let it go. That's why your wife should be in the front row when you become a preacher. I knew preachers that didn't think they were worthy to be a preacher because their wife didn't play the piano. You notice how many preachers' wives play the piano? So one last lesson to teach today. Don't be forgetful. It's a curse. It's very natural to forget, friends, but it's a curse. Solomon lamented it. There's no remembrance of former things, he said. James wrote it this way, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. Don't be forgetful. We tend to be a forgetful bunch. That's why when I teach chapter 11, I have to go back and renew the first I mean, chapter 12, I got to go back and review the first 10 chapters so that we can see why he's saying this now. So Peter offers the remedy, and this is the remedy. He writes, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. And then he goes on, though you know and are established in them. He knows you know this. I know you know these things. I don't think there's a lot of new information here. But reminding is why we get together on Sunday morning. Because the world erodes our understanding and our belief in things. So we come together. Yet I, yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. 
Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things even after my decease. In other words, he's writing them down. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. O Father, in Jesus' name, let us not be forgetful hearers. Let us be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, by the washing of the water of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.